Well, this evening we come to chapter 9 of Romans in our series on the gospel of God. And this chapter is an incredibly difficult chapter. And it's a difficult chapter because Paul sets forth a difficult doctrine. And it's not a difficult doctrine in the sense that it's hard to understand, but it's a difficult doctrine in the sense that it's hard to accept. James Boyce actually argues in his commentary on Romans that chapter 9 actually contains the most difficult subject matter of the entire Bible. So if you have any issues tonight with my sermon, you can take it up with Liam uh, after the service for assigning me this passage. Uh, In all seriousness, the book of Romans is incredibly complex and uh, multifaceted, and we could spend hours on each chapter. Uh, But due to the limits of time, I really just want to focus in on one of, I think, uh, the central points of this chapter, which is that election and reprobation are the eternal decrees of God. And I'd like to highlight three key features of this reality that Paul draws out. Firstly, that it is God's sovereign choice. Secondly, that it is God's merciful choice. And thirdly, that it is for his glory. As we consider God's holy word and will for our lives, I think it's important that we begin with a few preliminary considerations. Some of you might not be familiar with the terms election and reprobation, and since I'll be using them uh, throughout our time this evening, I'd like to offer some biblical definitions. Election refers to God foreordaining believers to eternal life. We see this in Romans 9, Ephesians 1, and really all throughout the, the tapestry of Scripture. God elects believers to eternal life not because of anything that we do or we contribute, but because out of his divine love and mercy, the triune God draws us to himself. We actually just saw this reality last week in Romans chapter eight, right? We have the golden chain where God foreknows, he predestines, he justifies, he glorifies uh, in verses 29 through 30, Romans eight, Election precedes faith. God's election of us is not his response to our faith. Rather, as the scriptures tell us, God elects believers in the counsel of his will according to his love and his mercy. There's nothing that that we can bring to the table in the process of God's divine electing. We are simply vessels of glory. Reprobation, as we will see, is also established in Romans 9. And reprobation refers to God's eternal decree of condemnation. In God's divine counsel and will, he has determined that some are to be vessels of wrath. God's condemnation of unbelievers is seen throughout all of Scripture But in Romans chapter 9, Paul explicitly reveals how God determines that some are destined for eternal punishment and torment. Now, it's important to note here that this does not make God the author of evil or the agent of sin. 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, to use the language of Scripture. In Adam's sin, we all sinned. This means that that we are all guilty and we are all morally culpable, right? We all deserve eternal condemnation. Yet God is not the instigator of evil deeds, for evil cannot dwell within a perfectly holy God. And this is important for us to remember. Now, election and reprobation have often been paired together under the umbrella term of double predestination. John Calvin actually says that you can't have election without reprobation. It would not, it wouldn't make sense. And I think the, the language of our confession really summarizes it well when it says, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto eternal life and others foreordained to everlasting death. That's the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter three, section three. And it's important for us to remember that double predestination does not mean that election and reprobation are perfectly symmetrical or corollary. In fact, it's quite the opposite. What we have in election is God calling us and then his spirit bringing us into newness of life through the process of regeneration. We are dead in our trespasses and God enables faith within us. With reprobation, right, God is not the author of evil. As I said earlier, all are guilty. And while God determines the vessels of wrath for his glory, he is, he is not the creator of evil. For evil is irreconcilable with a perfectly holy and just God. I hope that some of you are sort of beginning to, to sense the gravity of what we're dealing with here in Romans chapter 9. This is a very controversial text. It doesn't sit well with many people today. Philosophers and atheists, they've spent plenty of time trying to sort out how it is that a loving God could actually condemn people to hell, right? It's the the question of theodicy. In a collection of essays entitled God in the Dock, C.S. Lewis actually notes how in ancient times, when we would approach these questions, uh, we would approach the divine as the accused. God was, God was the judge, and we would meekly explore his unsearchable counsel with a sense of humility. But as Lewis notes, the times have radically changed. The modern man places God in the dock, in the penalty box, the accused. God stands as the accused, and we, we actually interrogate him from a place of arrogance and human-centeredness. How could a good God elect some people to hell? If God is good and just, how is it that my mother is dying of cancer? She never did anything wrong. Or why should I serve God when, when evil men flourish and the wicked are rich? As we approach this text, I, I really want to challenge us this evening to remind ourselves of who we are. As we've read in God's holy word that 
God is the potter and we are the vessels. God is the creator and we are the creature. God is the sculptor and we are the clay. If God has called you to himself, receive his words tonight. We know that the Bible is authoritative and God-breathed and that it is revelation that gives us objective truth. And as we study this passage, I would ask you even now to pray that the Holy Spirit would equip you with a humble spirit. God's word is true and we must receive the words of promise as they are rather than try to make sense of them from a limited perspective of human reasoning. The temptation for us is to often sort of fall for Satan's original question, right? Did God really say? God's truth is final and ultimate. And Romans 9, is a, it's, a, it's a hard truth. It's a difficult pill to swallow. But let us approach the word of God as it is, the God-breathed testament and revelation of absolute reality. If you think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3, when he talks about the milk and the meat, Romans 9 is the spiritual meat. There's spiritual milk, and then there's spiritual meat. The doctrines of election and reprobation are like a tough steak that is rich in substance, but dense in its complexity. I pray that we'll be able to chew uh, on these truths with a sense of solemnness and meekness. So firstly, the, the decrees of God here in Romans 9, they are his sovereign choice. We see this in verses 6 through 12 of Romans chapter 9. Paul begins in verse 6 with an emphatic statement. He writes, it is not as though the word of God has failed, verse 6. Paul goes on to explain what he means here. In verses 7 through 10, Paul reveals that God's promises never failed. He's referring to God's promises in the Old Testament to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And what Paul highlights here is that not everyone descended from Adam is a part of Adam, uh, or sorry, not everyone descended from Abraham is actually a part of Abraham's offspring. And not everyone who is part of Israel by birth is part of the covenant of promise. In other words, God's sovereign promise to Israel was fulfilled, even though some who were ethnically part of Israel fell away in unbelief. God is in control over all of human history. His promises to Israel were, for, were fulfilled in that those who were children of the promise were in fact elected to eternal life. And in the new heavens and the new earth, that spiritual Israel, those who are children of the promise, not by birth, but through faith in Jesus Christ, they will enter into that final rest. The invisible and the visible church shall be made one. Paul continues on and shows God's sovereignty over all of human affairs. In accordance with his plan of salvation, we see that God sovereignly chooses between Esau and Jacob. 
This is verses 11 through 13. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. This is the heart of God's sovereign choice, difficult though it may be to accept. Paul roots God's election and reprobation in the sovereign counsel of God's own divine will. It has nothing to do with their good or with their bad, as Paul says. Not because of their works, verse 10. As Augustine writes, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. God called Jacob to himself and despised Esau so that the purpose of election might continue and because God himself is the one who calls. This is the sovereign decree of God himself. And it's incredibly humbling to say the least. There is nothing that we do that is outside of God's control. Our omniscient and omnipresent triune God elects and condemns according to his divine purposes and to his secret counsel. There is no rhyme or reason that can explain away the divine will and purposes of Yahweh. His secret counsel transcends even our rational attempts to place God in the dock. The only explanation that's given by Paul is that election and reprobation are for God's glory, as we'll see a little later. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated, verse 13. You see, God's decree of election and reprobation are God's sovereign choice. He elects and condemns in accordance with his plan of salvation. Jacob was a father of Israel, of the line of the seed of the woman. And before the foundation of the world, God chose Jacob out of his sovereign and timeless will to play an important role in redemptive history. As many commentators have noticed, this language of love and hate is covenantal in nature. There is no middle or neutral ground. You either dwell in God's unsearchable light or you stumble and stagger in darkness. And God is the sovereign one who wills and works in us for his good pleasure. Well, secondly, we see that God's decree of election is merciful. We've just seen how God loves and hates according to his divine will. And this is really, I think, where many Christians struggle to come to terms with God's truth for our lives. And yet Paul actually anticipates this very instinctual reaction that most of us have to these divine decrees, right? We read that God sovereignly chooses some and condemns others. And we go, well, how is that fair? And Paul anticipates this objection head on. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? Verse 14. In other words, is God unfair? 
Is he unjust? Well, Paul responds quite passionately, by no means. Paul emphatically reminds us of who we are. God cannot be unjust and he cannot be unfair for he is God. No evil or injustice can dwell within a perfectly holy God. As Leon Morris writes, to say that God is unjust is for Paul self-contradictory. But Paul goes further. He says it's all mercy, verses 15 through 18. We've got this thing upside down. How could a loving God choose some for glory and condemn others to hell? It's not fair. Well, that's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. For Paul, the question should really be, why should God save anyone at all? Why should he? We all deserve death and eternal condemnation. We are dead in our trespasses. And in our sins, Ephesians 2, 1, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The verdict that we deserve is guilty. What would, what would really be fair, what would really be just is if we, endure, if we all endured God's eternal wrath. But God, in his love, sent down his son and Christ Jesus endured God's wrath. He took our punishment for sin and death. He drank the cup that we could never drink. And he did this not because of something that is inherently good within us, but out of his great love and mercy. He who was rich in love gave us more than we ever deserved. That's the great injustice, if you really think about it. What's really unjust is that Christ stood in the place of sinners for sins that he never committed. Christ died for you and me out of his great compassion and mercy. There is no injustice on God's part. God has mercy on whom he has mercy, verse 15. And this reality does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God's mercy. Verse 16. In other words, for Paul, again, God is the one who is in control. His predestining love and his election does not depend on our human volition, but it rests on God's mercy. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourselves, huh? Is Paul telling us here that that we're just robots? Do we have free will? Do, do our choices actually matter then? And the answer is yes and no. Our choices do matter and the Bible is full of exhortations and commands to fulfill the call to follow Jesus. But at the end of the day, God's foreknowledge of our wills our thoughts and our actions is determinative of all of reality as we see in Romans 9. 
I find the language of our confession very helpful here. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, section 2. In relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. Yet, by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. In other words, God foreordains and foreknows all things. Nothing can happen apart from his divine will. In eternal space and time, he knows every decision and act before he foreordains it. But still, our our decisions and our choices matter. This is because God uses secondary causes, to use the language of our confession, as a means to accomplish his holy will. Like prayer, for example. Our Lord teaches us to pray to our Father in heaven because our Father hears our prayers. Our prayers are a means by which God carries out his will. And it's the same situation here in Romans 9, verses 17 and 18. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Even though in the book of Exodus, we also read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God uses human agency, these secondary causes, to accomplish his foreordained will. Pharaoh did, in fact, harden his own heart because God foreordained it. This is an example of a secondary cause, and God uses it so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 17. What we do matters, but it matters because God has determined beforehand that it should matter. The end of the day, what we must take away from this is that God is in control and governs all of human affairs. The fact that he saves anyone at all is a severe mercy. I mentioned earlier that... uh, God's eternal decrees of election and reprobation transcend human reason. But but Paul does give us one piece of the puzzle to hold on to. And that is that God elects and condemns to the praise of his glory. That's the third point. Paul explains in verse 19 through 23 that the, the potter molds and shapes his creation for his glory alone. As creatures, we often want to know more. We want to know the inner mysteries and the secret counsel of God. But God, the creator of all things, he crafts and builds his creations to reflect and display the depths and riches of his glory. Paul begins in verse 19. We, the creatures, cannot resist the perfect will of our heavenly father. We cannot answer back to God. Paul uses this analogy of a potter and of clay vessels to to sort of unpack the absurdity of answering back to God. God is the great artist. 
who molds us as lumps of clay. How absurd it is, if you really think about it then, that we as molded vessels might turn to God the potter and ask, why have you made me like this? In our pride, right, we, we place God in the hot seat and seek to question his perfect will as if we have the right to do so. But what the Holy Spirit teaches us here is that God is the potter and that he molds and creates according to his perfect divine will. Some vessels he fashions for honorable use and others he fashions for dishonorable use. Verse 21. Some he fashions as vessels of wrath and others he fashions as vessels of glory. Verse 22. And why does he do this? Well, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 23. You see, God elects and he condemns to display his great glory. In election and reprobation, God is glorified. God's glory is manifested in the redeemed. God's glory is manifested in the destruction of the wicked. And God's glory is forever front and center in the doctrines of uh, election and reprobation. I think Paul uses this analogy of an artist to reveal something to us about glory and beauty. If you've ever been moved or stirred by a piece of art, You've experienced what I'm talking about, right? Artists often will capture beauty in their handiwork. And when people are moved by the aesthetic value of the piece, it reflects upon the creator of that piece, right? And in many ways, so it is with our creator, as Paul tells us here. God fashions us according to his divine purposes as the artist, as the potter, as the molder, so that his glory might be displayed to all. Specifically in verses 22 and 23, God wants the vessels of mercy to realize his great grace and mercy. In God's electing love, he has chosen vessels of mercy, you and me, so that we might with thanksgiving rejoice for so great a salvation. Our only response really is one of humble thanksgiving. Blessed be our God who has sent us his only son to secure for us vessels of mercy such abundant and free grace. Now I want to close this evening with uh, three points of application and they're going to be relatively quick so don't get worried. We've certainly covered uh, some heavy doctrine and I think it's important for us to realize sort of the implications of election and reprobation here in Romans 9. So number one, the fact that God elects and condemns according to his divine foreknowledge is not a reason to stop evangelizing. The Great Commission still stands And in fact, I think it stands even greater because of Romans 9. 
Herman Bovink says it, I think, really well, much better than I could say. He says, quote, The purpose of election is not, as it is so often proclaimed, to turn off the many, but to invite all to participate in the riches of God's grace in Christ. No one has a right to believe that he or she is a reprobate. For everyone, everyone is sincerely and urgently called to believe in Christ with a view to salvation. This is critical for us to remember. We can't fall into into the trap of thinking that because God preordains all things, that evangelism is somehow futile. No, as, as the scriptures tell us again and again, Every human being is urgently called upon to confess the name of Jesus Christ. And believers are urgently called to spread this message of hope. Acts 18, I think, is a wonderful, wonderful example of this. God commands Paul here to continue preaching in Macedonia even after Paul meets a lot of resistance while he's trying to evangelize. Paul wants to leave the city But God appears to him in a dream and he says, we read this in in Acts chapter 18, God says to Paul, go on speaking and do not be silent for I have many in this city who are my people. Acts 18 verse 10. Paul ends up staying there for a year and six months, we're told, teaching the word of God to the people, the text says. You see here, God uses the the secondary means of the preached word to accomplish his divine will. Because, uh, as it says in, in, in Acts 18, God had many in that city that he had chosen before the foundation of the world that had not yet heard the good news. We should seek to bring the gospel to the four corners of the earth, knowing that that God has the names of many written in the book of life who have been foreordained to hear the gospel preached by those who are sent. Number two, assurance of salvation. Now, some of us might hear Romans 9 and get a little spiritually depressed. We might be wondering to ourselves, well, what if, what if God has made me a vessel of wrath. How, how do I know? What if, what if I've been predetermined to be a reprobate? Well, I can, I can understand where the question is coming from, but I think we must answer it by looking at the alternative, as I think Paul does. We must remember that election depends not on man, but on God, as Paul says in Romans 9. If salvation were up to us, right, that if we truly had ultimate free will and God was not in control, we would mess it up. If the ball was in our court, right, if if our salvation depended on our own strength or the vigor of our faith, we would never have assurance of faith at all. Because as, as sin starts to creep into our lives, as it does, we'd be confronted with sort of spiritual, existential angst. 
Am I good enough? Is my faith strong enough? We actually have profound assurance of faith in knowing that God is the one who irresistibly calls us to himself and draws us to himself. And we, we actually cannot resist his will, as Paul says. Jesus says to us, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Brothers and sisters, have you heard and believed? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. And that is your assurance of salvation. If you have heard and you have believed, you can rest in knowing that God has secured for you so rich a salvation. And nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. As the Holy Spirit tells us in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's assurance of faith. Lastly, uh, number three, these doctrines, I think, force us to, to cry, Jesus, Son of David, Have mercy on me, a sinner. When we think about that true justice would really be for all of us to be condemned as vessels of wrath, all we can really do is look to Christ. Election and reprobation point us to Christ and him crucified. We see our own sin and our own unworthiness. If we truly are submitting ourselves to the word of God and and what it says, we find that God's electing love is a deeply unmerited mercy. Nothing we do or say convinces God to draw us to himself. And this is incredibly humbling. We cling to Christ, right, because he bore our sin and our guilt. He suffered the greatest injustice that ever occurred. He restores ruined sinners to himself for their joy And for his glory. Our posture as believers then should be one of thankfulness and gratitude. The glory is to God alone for the work that he does in our lives. His saving grace surpasses the limits of even beyond what we might be able to fathom. May we rejoice in Christ for purchasing us with his blood and may we rest in the hope that our God has molded us and fashioned us according to his sovereign will out of his abundant mercy and for his great glory. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would give us a spirit of thankfulness in light of what we have heard from your word this evening. Would we grow in grace, Lord, as we submit ourselves to your truth revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ and your holy word. 
Lord, would you enable us to walk in your light and use us as vessels of mercy so that your glory might indeed be displayed to all the nations. And may we be conformed unto the image of Christ, O Lord, and may he be exalted in our actions as you send us out into your world this week. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.